You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Wesley. As I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and today we continue in our series of Genesis, looking at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which teaches us so much about who God is, uh, the purpose and the goodness of his creation, and really big questions about who we are as humans. Now, today we find ourselves in perhaps a somewhat familiar passage that uh, probably typically at least leads our minds to think of marriage. It's been said, we were at a, a wedding just a few days ago, uh, and, and when I was thinking about this passage this week, uh, a movie popped in my head, one of my favorite romantic comedies, called The Princess Bride. Anybody seen The Princess Bride? Okay, wow, more than I thought. Uh, for those Gen Zers in the house, uh, it was made in the 80s, so you have to go back and, and watch it. Maybe you can find it in high def these days. But uh, Princess Bride is a, is a great movie, and it's about this, this main character. Perhaps the reason I like it the most is because the main character actually shares my name, which is very uncommon. There's not a lot of Wesleys in Hollywood. Uh, but, but you have Wesley, and then you have Princess Buttercup. I'm not I'm making these names up. Uh, and then you have this evil prince, uh, Humperdinkle, uh, who, who is trying to, uh, well, the, the kind of the story is, as you can imagine, he's, he's trying to wed this bride, uh, Princess Buttercup. And so one of, one of the most famous scenes of the movie is when there is this priest performing the arranged marriage against the will of the bride. And he opens up the ceremony with these famous words. Now, I'm not going to try to repeat what's on the screen here, but he says, marriage, marriage is what brings us together here today. And in this ceremony, he begins to elaborate on this marriage ceremony very methodical and very slowly. And the evil prince is like, dude, let's hurry up. We got to make this work. And then you hear this knocking. You hear this banging noise in the distance. And, And Princess Buttercup, she yells out, that's my Wesley coming to rescue me. Which I just imagine were the same words Abby used to whisper under her breath when all those guys tried to date her and failed, right? It's my Wesley coming to rescue me. Now, I share this today because uh, it's kind of funny, but um, I share this because when we think of Genesis chapter 2, the end of Genesis chapter 2, our minds and hearts are really directed towards relationships. But what we don't want to miss today is, is the forest for the trees. This passage reveals so much more and, and is really so much deeper than just a marital relationship. As human beings, we cannot avoid relationships. Whether we realize it or not, it's something that we're hardwired to desire from birth. Infants desire close proximity to their mothers. Children, as they grow up, even if there's no human beings in proximity to them, will make up imaginary friends for companionship. And some of you probably still do that today, right? When you get older, you, you feel the sense of wanting to belong. When someone invites you to a party, it, it enlivens your hearts. When you fall in love with someone, there's this deep connection you share. When someone wants to celebrate a special occasion in your life and they care enough to do so, it it wells up these feelings in our hearts because we were created for community. We're created for relationships that's unavoidable in this life. But the question becomes, as we think about that, is, is, well then, how do we understand relationships? How do we understand the God who created us to desire this? What does it say about him? And what does it say about ourselves? And how can we actually have flourishing relationships in a world that is filled with so much hurt and pain in our life? 
And I think Genesis chapter 2 here gives us a glimpse to how to answer these big questions. When we look back at how God created us and how he wired us, how he designed us, there are some answers that we can see for this longing, this yearning that we have for relationships and how that can be fulfilled. And so here is our main point, which will be up on the screen. God has created us for relationship with him and one another. God has created us for relationship with him and with one another. Inherently, what that means is that being created in God's image, we're going to see today, means that we've been created with the capacity to relate to God, to know him and to be known. And not only do we have the capacity to relate to God, but we have the capacity and the desire within us to relate to one another. In our passage today, we're going to focus on these two aspects, how we relate to God in relationship and how do we relate to one another with three simple aspects of relationships from Genesis chapter 2. The first, we're going to see the longing for relationships that we all share, the provision of relationships that God gives, and then finally, the key to relationships. How do we actually have true relationship with God and one another in this world that is broken, in this world filled with hurt and pain? Now, if you've been joining us uh, over the last few weeks, or perhaps today is your, your first time with us, we've been in this series, the study of the book of Genesis. And we've said from the beginning that the book of Genesis is really all about beginnings. It's the first book of the Bible. It's written by Moses, and it's telling us the story of the world, how the world was created by God Almighty, created, designed by God Almighty, this God of power, this God of love, this God of intention and purpose and goodness. And he instills his beauty, he instills his goodness, he puts his fingerprint all over creation. And last week, specifically, we looked at how on the sixth day, God creates humanity. And that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are created, as we said last week, in the image of God, in God's image. And as been elaborated on last week, being made in his image means that we are to reflect and represent God in this world. We have the capacity, as God has created us, to reflect and image him in this world. And so today we pick up in chapter 2, in which the writer Moses is kind of zoning in on. He's stepping back into day number 6. And at the end of Genesis chapter 2, he's going to give us even greater detail regarding the creation of men and women. And that's where we pick up in verse 18. Let's read. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so as we look in the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, every day God is creating. He's creating the moon and the stars, the, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the, the animals, the birds of the, the air, and even humanity. And every time he creates, he says the same phrase over and over and over about his creation. It was good. But here in verse 18, we see something unique, something different in the creation account. For the very first time and the only time, God declares that something is not good. God says it is not good for the man to be alone. Why is that? When we think about Adam in paradise, he doesn't seem to be complaining, does he? 
right? You can imagine Adam kind of in this moment. He's in the garden. He seems to be very content. He's probably drinking out of a coconut, you know, uh, going down one of the rivers of Eden. He's not dialing God up and complaining, hey, there's something here you got to fix, right? He has this great calling to rule over creation. He doesn't even know what he's missing. But then God does something to help him see that he is actually missing something very valuable. Verse 19, God shows Adam that he is missing something. And how does he do it? He brings all the animals and he parades them in front of Adam to see what Adam would call them. You can imagine Adam sitting there and he's, he's got all these animals coming up to him. He, get, he begins to name them. Now, he's not, he's not doing like my daughters do with their stuffed animals, okay? Like they have an army of stuffed animals because for some reason, every time there's a special event, someone gets them a stuffed animal. And so they have as many animals now as was in the Garden of Eden. I truly believe that. And they have their stuffed animals. They line them up. And what they do is they give them pet names, right? They give them personalized names. This is Lammy. This is Scooch. This is Miss Pinky. This is, you know, whatever. They just kind of come up with names for all their different animals. That's not what's happening here. Uh, Adam's not just lining them up and giving them pet names. Think more of taxonomy here. Adam is, is developing classifications. Adam is the first zoologist the world has ever seen. Adam is the first botanist the world has ever seen. He is an intense scientist. It is part of his calling to do so. And you can imagine as he's interacting with all these different kinds of animals that are coming up and he's seeing, okay, here's the he lion, here's the she lion. Here's the he giraffe, here's the she giraffe. Here's the he elephant, here's the she elephant. That he realizes that there's something missing. There's something missing. They, they all seem to have their counterparts, their pairings in creation. But then Adam realizes that none of them are suitable for him. None of them are fit for him. None of them are the counterpart that he would desire to achieve God's purposes for him. See, if the first time Adam realizes there's no one who is this helper fit for him, there's no one else like him in creation. Now, what does this reveal to us today? Well, this longing for relationship, the reason we have it goes back to what we said last week. The reason we have longing for relationship is because we're made in the image of God. What Adam's learning here is something very distinctly about him being made in the image of God. And God is helping him see that he is missing something. He is not made in the image of a God. He is made in the image of the God. As we said week one, the triune God, one God eternally existing in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why when we go back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says what? Let us make man. Let us make man in what? Our image, after our likeness. We saw from the very beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation. The Father is speaking the world into existence. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then we learn later in the Bible from Colossians and John chapter 1 that all things were created through Jesus. And we see that human beings along with the entire cosmos is the loving result of this eternal community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, if we're the result of this loving, creative work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if God is truly three persons in one dwelling eternally in this relationship of love, then being created in God's image means that the relational nature of God is reflected in our human nature. So Adam realizes that he is missing something because just like a mirror, he is called to reflect, to represent the one who created him. He has the capacity to both be loved and to love 
to be praised and to praise, to be enjoyed and to enjoy others, to reflect the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is incredibly important of our understanding of ourselves and our design, because if we're reflected in the triune God, that means that inevitably all of us will long for deep relationships. We will all long for that. And if we don't have relationships with others, we'll feel a sense that we're missing something. There's something ingrained with us, a longing with us, just like Adam realizing that we need relationships in this life. And a lot of movies and TV shows actually illustrate this point very vividly for us. Think of any kind of post-apocalyptic movie or, or television series. Think of like uh, the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, right? In that movie, he's in a post-apocalyptic world where he's like the only human being, right? And what does he do to maintain a sense of his own humanity? He talks to who? Mannequins. He goes into a record store and he tries to have conversation with mannequins, these inanimate objects, to maintain some sense of companionship because he knows his heart longs for it. Or think of the comedic episode of one of my favorite shows, The Office, in which Dwight Schrute realizes that his beloved Angela is going to marry Andy. And he engrosses himself in this game he creates called Second Life. Actually, he creates Second Life to Second Life to try to further remove himself from reality to this inanimate world. Why? These examples, they show us that we are desired for deep and personal relationships. We're designed for it and we desire it. And you can look at studies after studies that will show that the lonelier a person is, the more that they will give human qualities to non-human objects. Because there's something within us that longs for relationship. And God sees that it's not good for man to be alone because the goal was not for us to be self-sufficient or to be autonomous. We're not enough by ourselves, but to image our creator. Adam desperately needed a community because he was made in the one who is community. Now, I know it's easy in a city like D.C., even with, with the numerous people that we have to get lost in a crowd. It's easy for us to hide. It's easy for us to be surrounded by so many people and yet not known by anyone. What we need is people that we can ask those questions to and say, who, who actually knows us in life? Is there anyone who has access to us? Are there deep relationships that we have that we cannot hide from? Are there people that fully know us, love us, and care for us? Because Genesis 2 teaches us here that being made in God's image means that we have a deep longing for relationships. But the goodness of God in his creation is he doesn't leave Adam alone, does he? Right? He, he fills the sense of longing through his provision, which we read in verse 21, the provision of relationships. Look at verse 21. He says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, the first thing that this provision of relationship, this longing that Adam had that God provides here, shows that in God's goodness, in his design, he has created complementarian male and female. He has created us to complete one another. He has created us male and female, equal yet different. This is the goodness of God's provision. He doesn't just provide anyone for the man. He provides someone very special and unique. Right in verse 21, it says that as he calls Adam to fall asleep, he takes a rib and out of that, he creates woman. What is he signifying here? What is he communicating to us? 
is that this woman is going to be so like him. That this woman is created an equal. Equal essence is of the same nature. Coming out of the ridge cave is signifying this to us. That both men and women are going to be created equally and beautifully in the very image of God. And when Adam wakes up and he sees her, he notices this, right? Like he's like, oh shoot, like she's like me, <laughs> right? Like he notices for the first time, like, like she is like me, but also she's unlike him, right? He says that this is the helper fit for Adam that he has longed for in verse 20. Now it's important for us to pause here for a second because I think we have to be careful here not to make the grave mistake of seeing this, this translation helper suitable or helper fit to mean that they're subordinate or secondary or lesser than. If we are to go down that road, we run the very high risk of taking something that God meant to be beautiful and complimentary to, to turn it to something that's toxic and very untrue. When God says here that, that he created this helper, what he is depicting here in the Bible is something very unique to the status of women as a commentary companion. There is no other ancient text in the Middle East that gives this commentary, this type of commentary on the creation of women. There's no other ancient creation narrative that you can find that values men and women in this way. When he says that she will be a helper to him or that she's the, the fit, the helper to him, this word in Hebrew is used in two different ways in the Old Testament. In one way, in which we actually just sung in one of the songs, it describes God himself. And in the other way, it describes a military aid or a military ally. Think of Exodus 18, where Moses refers to God as his helper, that the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Or think of Psalm 115, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their helper and shield. It certainly doesn't sound subordinate or lesser than, does it? But it's not just a helper. It's also someone who's fit, suitable, someone who can complete Adam. A better translation might be that it's like opposite him. It's a corresponding counterpart who is like him yet unlike him who can supply what is lacking in him, a power corresponding to man. The image may be like this, that God creates men and women here. He creates them as puzzle pieces that fit together. Why do they fit so perfectly together? Because they're not exactly alike, but they're not randomly different. They're differentiated in such a way that they come together to complete a whole. In the same way, both men and women have unique glories being created in the image of God. They have unique giftings, and when they come together, they create this bond, this union that reveals and represents and re reflects the very image of their creator. That's right in verse 23, as we continue to read, when Adam wakes up, he meets this similar yet different woman, and what does he do? He breaks out in poetry, right? He pulls out the old guitar, he picks off a rose from the garden, and he begins to serenade her. Which reminds us from the very beginning that guys who have musical abilities just have the upper hand. They just do, right? They just do. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Finally, Adam sees, oh, this woman, she is so like me and yet unlike me. And his longing for completion is being fulfilled by God's provision 
of men and women, both designed equal yet different to complement one another. Now, there's a few reasons why this is important for us to understand. One, God never intended that Adam would, would, uh, would have dominion in this world by himself. And God surely didn't intend that, that Adam would be able to fulfill his calling to fill the earth and multiply and subdue it by himself either. And so God provides the woman here as a way to show that equally they would have fellowship together in dominion. And equally they would bear fruit together in this world. But I think there's a third reason as well. That is a reflection of the goodness of God. It is a reflection of the goodness of God in our creation. This goes beyond just marriage, and this passage is so much bigger than this. It's something that as a society, as a church, we reflect the image of God better together. Which means that if one gender is not fully participating in all their unique glories and their unique beauty and giftings, then we miss out on something very beautiful. We miss out on something that fully images God. That's why it is for our good as a church to make sure we don't allow cultural stereotypes of definitions of maleness or femaleness or particular cultural gender roles to undermine what God has written in his word for us. It is good for us to see the goodness of God in creation because in the context of where we live, gender is, is referred to as a psychological reality now, independent and separated from biology, by sex. Which means that what happens is there's no essence, there's no meaning in our bodies. Our bodies become accidental and what really matters is just how we feel inside. But notice here in the very beginning, out of all the human characteristics that God could highlight in his creation, he doesn't reveal the IQ of Adam and Eve. He doesn't reveal the ethnicity of Adam and Eve. He highlights their sex, male and female, reminding us that gender is not something that we come up with. Gender is a reality God stamps into our body and soul from creation. We have to see the goodness of this because we are created bodies. We are embodied souls, meaning that there is goodness, there is design. Our bodies are not just things, they are gifts. There's goodness and in design inherent in our bodies. And we image God when we see his glory through the distinctness of what it means to be male or female. Our bodies are no accident. You and I are fearfully and wonderfully made with great purpose. Perhaps one area that the church has done a poor job in this topic is to see how culture shapes our understanding of masculinity and femininity. While we have to understand that there is male and female as God has created it, we should also recognize that there is a diverse spectrum of personalities and temperaments and talents in which God has created also. Which means... We should rightly celebrate God's design of men and women while not intentionally or unintentionally declaring a certain type of girl, one who loves pink and flowers, or a certain type of boy who chops wood and loves sports to be more godly than another. God has created us male and female, and we find that our identity up for first and foremost is in the fact that we are made in the image of our creator. Meaning that True masculinity, true femininity comes out as we grow in likeness to Christ. We are created, male and female, equal yet 
different for the glory of God. But not only that, we also see something else that God's provision tells us about our creation is that we're not only just created uh, to, to complement one another in this world, and that's the beauty of his provision, we're also created to be other-centered. We're created to be other-centered. Notice in this entire passage, it's filled with ex- examples of, of other-centered love, sacrifice. God himself, in his humility, creates Eve for Adam. Think about that for a moment. God so designed us and he created us in such a way that we would not just need him, but we would need one another. The beauty of God's sacrifice, his otherness, that he would say, I want to create you in such a way that you have a capacity to need other people in your life, not just me. And more so than just that, when when Adam realizes this, what does he do in verse 24? We see a wedding. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam looks up when he sees Eve, and he doesn't just turn to himself and start singing a, a, a poem, right? He looks at another, and it draws him into a deep love for that individual. And we see the pattern now that we would leave our father and mother, we'd hold fast to our wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a strengthening of his love for another as he pours himself out for another. I recall an English lit class that we were studying one of the the old Greek mythologies, uh, the one about Narcissus, which is pretty, uh, pretty good. Uh, Narcissus uh, was a young man, as seen in the picture here, uh, who, who believed himself to be so handsome that he fell in love with his own image. And so what Narcissus would do was he would go and he would stare in this pool, and he would look at his reflection. As the story goes, Narcissus stares at himself so long that he becomes sick with self-love. And here we see Adam doing the exact opposite. Adam doesn't look at himself he looks to another. And Paul later in Ephesians 5 would say that this, this, this mystery of what happens here is so profound. He says that it refers to Christ and the church. Meaning this, the, the, the earthly picture of marriage here has a huge meaning for us. It shows us the remedy to our struggling self-centered hearts. It shows us the remedy to our struggling self-centered hearts hearts, which causes damage to both our relationship with God and with one another. The ultimate embrace of the other, the ultimate show of love comes when Jesus sacrifices himself, when he shows love for those who are unholy, when he shows those love for those just like narcissists who are filled with self-love, when he pours out his life for others. This is why Jesus came, that we would experience God's love in Christ. And when we do, we experience a deep, a, the deepest happiness that we can experience because we now know what it looks like to pour ourselves out for others. God has designed us in such a way, just like Adam, that we would be other-focused, other-centered. And when we serve others, when we consider others' interests more important than ourselves, when we begin to pour our lives out for the sake of another, Jesus does something in our hearts. He slowly weans us off of that poison of self-centeredness. He causes us to look to another. Now as we you're ready to close here. Let's look at our third point, the key to relationships. God has created a longing in our hearts that we would desire deep relationships. He has provided companionship with one another. He's provided male and female equal yet different. He's, he's provided for us an image of what it looks like to be other-centered, to, to fill us with happiness in our relationships with one another. And then finally, we see the key to relationships in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. What this reveals to us today is this, that we were all created to be both fully known and fully loved. This simple verse paints a beautiful picture for what our hearts really need, to be both fully known and fully loved. And this is not just in the context of marriage. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're a parent, grandparent, neighbor, every relationship, the key to relationship is being fully known and fully loved. And that's what we see here with the first man and woman. They were naked and unashamed. It doesn't just mean in a sexual, physical reality. It wasn't that they were staring at each other's bodies, right? There's something deeper here. They were naked, meaning they were fully transparent. They weren't trying to scramble to put their best foot forward. They weren't trying to control what the other thought of them. They had nothing to hide. They were fully exposed. Why? Because they were unashamed. They were completely at ease with themselves. They were completely stable in their identity. They knew who they were and who God created them to be. And that is what we all need, right? To be fully known, yet fully loved. But the problem is, is that's hard to do in this life, isn't it? It's hard to do in this world because we think if we want to be loved by someone, then we have to be someone we're not. If we truly want someone to love us, then we have to try to spin people's narratives of us because we don't want them to see our flaws, our selfishness, our pride, our weakness, our anxiety. And deep down, we all know this is true. And, and we'll see in a, in a few weeks as we look at Genesis chapter 3 that this was the same for Adam and Eve. That the minute they sinned, the minute that they ate of the tree, the minute they decided to be their own masters, they became ashamed and covered their nakedness. They'd seen each other's bodies. Why were they covering themselves? Because deep down inside, they know the same feeling we have today, that there is something wrong with us. Whether we believe the Bible or not, whether we believe the Christian faith or not, we know deep down inside that there is something wrong with us, and it leads us to want to cover. It leads us to want to cover. And yet God here, who made us in his image, the triune God, is, is a Godhead that fully knows one another, yet loves each other. The Son of God knows the Father and never ceases to love him. The Spirit knows the Son and never ceases to love him. And we're made in his image. And so we long for this, to be fully known and yet fully loved. And we can't quite get there because of our sin. Because we know if we open up, people will see our flaws. And what we need is a spiritual covering. We need something outside of ourselves to cover us. What we need to know is that on the cross, Jesus Christ became naked for us. John 19, it shares for us in verse 23, that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. Jesus is stripped on the cross and they cast lots for his clothes. He experiences the ultimate humiliation. Why was he willing to do that? Why was he ravaged like this? He did it to pay for our sins. Jesus' nakedness can become your cover today. Why would he do this? Why would God do this? If he fully knows us, if he knows the depths of our hearts, why would he do this? Because he fully loves us despite that. That is the beauty of the gospel. He did it anyways. The nakedness of Christ on the cross proves to us that God loves us all the way to the depths of our hearts, even when there's sin. And when he redeems his people, you know what he calls us? His bride. 
And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, if we believe on Jesus today in such a way that we can approach God naked and unashamed, then that is the beginning to how we can become fully known by others. That is the beginning to how we can become transparent with others. That is the beginning of how we can have real, authentic relationships with others. It is the power that we can live in this world and be fully transparent because we don't need others' approval. It's the power that we can be fully transparent because we don't have to hide who we are anymore. We are men and women created in the image of our creator, loved by Jesus, covered by Jesus. We are the bride of Jesus. And when we believe this, we can be so unashamed because of the love we've experienced through Christ. We can be transparent. We can be authentic because of what Christ has done. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, if today, if you're struggling under the weight of loneliness today, if you feel that heavy burden of your shame and your own nakedness just bearing down on you today, consider what God has given you. He has given you his son. He has given you his son. He has loved you to the depths of your hearts so that you can have a rightly restored relationship with him. And he has also given you his people so that we as the bride of Christ can rightly love one another. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.